You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon, Episode 16, Into the Storm. Thanks for joining me. First things first, we still need more people to fill out the listener survey. I know these announcements are kind of annoying. Well, the sooner we have enough of these surveys, the sooner I can stop doing these announcements. If you want to help out, go to survey.libsyn.com slash Age of Napoleon. That's survey.libsyn.com slash Age of Napoleon. Once again, I'll put a link in the episode description if you didn't catch that. Thanks to those of you who have already taken it. Anyway, when we left off last time, Napoleon had just returned from a difficult stay in Paris. He had visited the capital to safeguard his military career, and to hide from the wrath of Pasquale Paoli. These had been achieved easily, but during his time in the city, Napoleon witnessed some extremely disturbing scenes of mob violence. He returned to Corsica in October of 1792, still shaken. And these hadn't just been personal traumas. The wild summer of 1792 had brought the whole country to the precipice. As we've discussed before, France had never been a united society, and the years of crisis had only widened social divisions. As the revolution grew more radical, the crack-up accelerated. In Napoleon's absence, Joseph, against all odds, was still trying to curry favor with Pasquale Paoli. The Bonapartes were nothing if not persistent. He arranged for younger brother Lucien Bonaparte, now 17, to interview for a position on Pauli's staff, similar to the one their father held all those years ago. Pauli wrote Joseph a very nice letter about how impressed he was by the young man, but Lucien did not get the job. In late 1792, the assembly in Paris was to be replaced by a new national legislative body, the Convention. As the name suggests, The main duty of this institution would be writing a new constitution for France, but it would also be running the government on a provisional basis until that task was complete. Joseph asked Pauli's permission to run for a seat, but was denied. Pauli had called a convention as well, to create a new constitution for Corsica. Now, this wasn't in competition with the convention in Paris. Just like the United States today, 
French regional governments had their own constitutions that governed their local laws and government. As a consolation prize, Pauli gave Joseph permission to campaign to be a delegate to this regional constitutional convention, which Joseph won easily. Joseph had hoped this represented an olive branch, but once he arrived in Corte, he found Pauli as hostile as ever. The process was dominated by Pauli's inner circle. Non-Paulisti delegates like Joseph were shut out completely. He complained of his bad relationship with the general in his letters to Napoleon, and seems to have finally come to a long-overdue realization. Quote, Pauli does not want to ally with us. That is the heart of the matter. End quote. Corsica's conservative political establishment had always been uneasy with the revolution from the very beginning. The developments over the summer seemed to confirm all of their suspicions. Pauli's influence grew even stronger, as powerful Corsicans increasingly saw him as the only bulwark against the storm of revolution. Similar political processes were happening in every conservative region of France. Of course, nowhere else had a figure like Pauli or Corsica's legacy of independence, but many local elites across the kingdom had never been enthusiastic about the revolution, and by late 1792, they were nearing the end of their patience. The breaking point was reached on January 21, 1793. Citizen Louis Capet, formerly known as King Louis XVI of France, was executed on charges of treason. As a Jacobin, Napoleon publicly applauded the death of the king. In private, he was ambivalent. He detested Louis as a person and the institution of the monarchy, but he also worried about the political consequences. He predicted the result would be anarchy, which would prove prescient. Louis had been almost universally unpopular by the end of his life. Even many conservatives disliked him. The way they saw it, the revolution was a catastrophe. It had happened under Louis's watch, so he was to blame. But much as they disapproved of Louis's performance, most French conservatives still held the office of the king and the institution of the monarchy in high esteem. For the right wing, these were symbols that transcended vulgar politics and the character of the man who held them. They believed the king's rule over France modeled the patriarchal relationships that should govern all society, between noble and subject, man and wife, and father and children. They also saw the monarchy as the axis of two ancient, sacred alliances, between France and its nobility, and between France and the Catholic Church. Whatever they thought of Louis, he was the symbol of everything important and sacred about the government. When the revolutionaries declared a republic and executed the king, conservative nobles saw it as a declaration of war on those values, and the symbolic end of the long-standing agreements that bound them to the central government. So, they began to take up arms. They found ready recruits among the peasantry. Traditionalist priests across rural France had been spreading the gospel of counter-revolution for years now, and once the government passed the levee en masse in the summer of 1792, French peasants were faced with a choice. Fight for the government that their priests were calling the work of the devil, 
or dodge the draft, effectively becoming an outlaw. Some simply tried to hide when the man from the government came to town, but many left home for the forests or the highlands, either to live as bandits or simply to lay low until all this conscription foolishness blew over. These bands of wilderness draft dodgers were opposed to the government, living rough, and dodging the authorities. For all intents and purposes, they already were a rebel guerrilla army. All they needed were weapons, training, and a little leadership, all of which the conservative nobles were happy to provide. The heartland of the rebellion was the Vendée, a poor rural region of western France. This area is so closely identified with the uprising that the whole event is often referred to as the War in the Vendée, or the Vendée Rebellion, and the rebels are often simply called Vendéans. But the uprising also extended north into Brittany and Normandy, and south into central France. And of course, not everyone in the Vendée supported the rebellion. There had been low-level violence in conservative Catholic areas since all the way back in 1791, but by March of 1793, this was a real war. The rebel forces grew from tiny bands of peasants in the wilderness into real armies of thousands of men, capable of challenging Republican forces in open battle. Mostly led by counter-revolutionary former army officers and supplied by the British Navy, they called themselves the Catholic and Royal Army, and pledged loyalty to the Count of Artois, brother of Louis XVI and de facto leader of the counter-revolutionary émigrés. Like many civil wars, the Vendée Rebellion was a savage affair. Neither side asked for quarter, none was given. Both the government and the rebels regularly engaged in massacres of civilians suspected of supporting the other side. Many of the worst atrocities of the revolution occurred in the Vendée and surrounding areas. Sometimes the two sides fought in big open battles, but most engagements were small-scale, raids on villages controlled by the enemy, or ambushes on isolated patrols. This was an insurgency, a guerrilla war, often fought between natives of the region. The rural nobility and the peasants joined the royalist rebel bands, but even in the heart of the Vendée region, many of the bourgeoisie and townspeople joined the National Guard and fought for the revolution. The scale of the war fluctuated. When the rebels had the momentum, their armies grew and they challenged the Republicans in the field and laid siege to cities. When the government gained the upper hand, the rebels tended to melt away into the countryside. But to one degree or another, the rebellion will be going on in the background of our story for quite a while, all the way until after Napoleon takes power. Almost every powerful Catholic conservative remaining in France declared war on the Republic. But Pasquale Paoli was not your typical Catholic conservative. He stayed loyal. On paper, at least. Maybe he still felt a twinge of the Enlightenment liberalism of his youth. But he was also a shrewd and calculating politician. My guess would be he simply recognized rebellion was not the right play at this moment. It was no secret that Pauli didn't care for the revolutionary government. But his main focus at this stage was solidifying his own control of Corsica. The new regional constitution being drafted by the delegates in Corte would be the capstone of that process. Declaring war on the Republic would have little upside for Pauli. 
He was already pretty independent from Paris, and rebellion would complicate his political designs at a crucial moment. So, while the rest of conservative France abandoned the revolutionary government, Pauli continued paying lip service to Paris. Of course, he had little interest in actually helping the revolutionaries survive the various existential threats they faced. His plan seems to have been to stay out of the chaos and exploit it to increase his own power, then deal with whoever ultimately came out on top. To that end, he was already in secret communications with his old friends, the British. This wasn't a bad plan, all things considered. Corsica was isolated from the main theaters of war, and the revolution seemed doomed. But the revolutionaries were fighting with every tool at their disposal. They were not going to let Corsica just sit this one out. In early 1793, the revolutionary government ordered Pauli to join the war effort. Pauli's mission was to invade the island of Sardinia, which is just south of Corsica. Its king also ruled over a sizable chunk of northern Italy, and he had just joined the coalition against France. The orders called for 10,000 men to strike at La Maddalena, an island in the straits between Sardinia and Corsica. La Maddalena has a good natural harbor. It would be an obvious base for coalition naval operations in the Mediterranean, or even a jumping-off point for a future invasion of Corsica. The operation made strategic sense, but I think it was also intended as a bit of a loyalty test. By now, it was clear that Pauli valued his commitment to the Republic only so far as it served him and his plans for Corsica, but it would be useful for the government to find out just how far he was willing to take this charade. If Pauli believed it was in his interest to make a sincere contribution to the war effort, maybe he could make a useful partner. If not, better to find out sooner rather than later and start looking for alternatives. Pauli obeyed. He began to assemble an expeditionary force to attack La Maddalena. Although, as we'll see, whether he obeyed the spirit of his orders rather than just the letter is very much open to debate. The invasion force was small, 16 civilian boats to act as transports, plus a gunboat on loan from the Navy to act as escort and fire support. There would be a little under 2,000 ground troops. Pauli's orders from Paris had called for five times that many. Some of the troops were trained regulars from the mainland, but the majority would be local Corsican National Guardsmen. The largest contingent was about 450 men from the Ajaccio unit of the National Guard, including Napoleon Bonaparte. The Ajaccio Guard was well known by now as a radical, pro-revolutionary institution but overall command of the expedition went to a staunch Pauli loyalist, Colonel Pietro Colonna di Cesare Rocca, Pauli's own nephew. The force assembled at the port town of Bonifacio in late February. On the 20th, they were formally briefed on their mission, and there was nearly a mutiny. As you might expect of part-time militiamen suddenly faced with the prospect of fighting in a real battle against real soldiers, the guardsmen came up with a hundred different excuses and complaints. But the main issue was the elements. The straits between Corsica and Sardinia are the most treacherous waters in the entire Mediterranean. Worse, late February is prime season for the Mistral, 
which is a type of weather phenomenon unique to this area. It's an intense windstorm that tends to start suddenly out of clear blue skies. If you've experienced Southern California's Santa Ana winds, they're pretty similar. The Mistral is a fixture of Corsican life. Every one of those guardsmen would have learned at an early age that only a madman would attempt to sail the straits during Mistral season. Imagine being ordered to sail through the Bermuda Triangle in a tiny wooden sailboat during hurricane season. Napoleon stepped in and calmed things down before the situation escalated, but the troops were not happy. Sure enough, when the expedition tried to depart, it was forced to turn back by bad weather and rough seas. Things were not off to a great start. Conditions didn't really improve much, but on the 22nd of February they tried again and successfully made the crossing. The expedition only had to travel about 7 miles, or 11 kilometers, but conditions were so terrible that it took them most of the day. The French attempted to land on La Maddalena, but immediately came under heavy fire. The Sardinians were waiting for them. With 18th century technology, an amphibious landing under fire was practically impossible. The only way to land troops on hostile territory was to find an undefended stretch of coast, or find a way to clear the enemy away from the beach. La Maddalena is a small island. There weren't many suitable landing beaches, so Napoleon decided to attempt the latter. He took his men to San Stefano, an even tinier island just a few thousand feet, or several hundred meters, from La Maddalena. They stormed the island's tiny garrison and set up their artillery to bombard the Sardinian defenses. With this battery on San Stefano, the French would be able to disable or distract the Sardinian guns defending the beaches of La Maddalena. Napoleon implored Colonel de Cesari to order another landing, but he refused. The men were too tired, and it was too late in the day. Napoleon was furious. He had the enemy guns in his sights. They would have had no choice but to either return fire or be destroyed. One way or another, he believed he could have the landing beach open in minutes. Napoleon launched into a tirade, questioning de Cesari's fitness for command, and even his intelligence, which, no surprise, did not help his case. That evening, another storm blew in. San Stefano was pounded by wind and rain, but Napoleon and his men stayed up all night, moving a gigantic siege mortar into position. This was a heavy, cumbersome weapon, designed to be moved by a team of horses. They did it with their own hands, through a storm. In the morning, Napoleon and his men opened fire. They spent all day bombarding the town and its fortifications before finally getting some sleep that night. The next morning, the bombardment continued. By now, the gun emplacements guarding the town were all destroyed. A fire had broken out in the harbor, and much of the garrison was distracted trying to put it out. Still, de Cesari did not order an assault. He attempted only a small landing on a minor outlying island, and retreated as soon as he faced resistance. Night fell again, and no progress had been made. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. 
With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Napoleon started the next day just as he had the previous two, restarting the bombardment. According to a contemporary estimate by the Sardinian Navy, over a thousand artillery rounds from San Stefano struck the town and fortifications on La Maddalena. Bonaparte and his men were doing their job well, but the rest of the expedition was in bad shape. Many of the ships were damaged, including the gunboat. Between the failed landing and fire from the shore, over 10% of the men who had left Bonifacio were already dead. After all that sacrifice, the only territory the French held was Napoleon's foothold on San Stefano, captured the very first day. The weather remained bad, and the French had to contemplate the possibility that if it got any worse, they might not be able to make it back to Corsica and their damaged ships. Colonel Di Cesari decided it was time to return home. He sent a boat to San Stefano with orders for Bonaparte. Evacuate the island immediately, abandon all equipment. Stubborn as always, Napoleon instead commanded his men to load the guns onto the ship. He would not leave without his cannon, and artillerymen to the corps. The Sardinians on La Maddalena watched as the French began the laborious process of moving the cannon to the ship by hand, and saw an opportunity. They landed their own force on San Stefano, aiming to kill or capture Napoleon and his men, and seize the cannons. Just as the French had days earlier, the Sardinians successfully stormed the island's fortifications. Napoleon's rearguard was killed or captured, and the Sardinians headed for the beach. There was no choice now but to follow the colonel's orders. Napoleon ordered his men to stop their work, heave the mortar into the sea, and board the ship. They arrived back in Bonifacio that night, after another arduous crossing. Over 200 men were dead, several hundred more wounded, and another dozen or so taken prisoner. All the artillery was lost, and that gunboat, on loan from the Navy, would be out of commission for months. So, there you have it. Napoleon's first battle. A defeat. Napoleon had been headstrong and impulsive, deviating from the plan, disobeying orders, and berating his commanding officer. But he had fought well. Generally speaking, the expedition had been a fiasco from beginning to end, but the troops under Bonaparte's command had actually been quite effective. In fact, almost every success achieved by the expedition came through the efforts of Napoleon and his men. The Battle of La Maddalena was a clear defeat for the French, and Napoleon had strong suspicions as to why. He and the other senior National Guard officers returned to Corsica believing they had been betrayed to the Sardinians, and that Colonel Di Cesari had deliberately sabotaged the expedition. Now, it's worth pointing out that these guys were all on the other side from Di Cesari, politically speaking, and that this explanation of the defeat absolves them from any responsibility. So, it was certainly convenient. Still, I think it's worth considering. 
A leak would certainly explain a lot about the course of the battle. The Sardinians seemed to have known the French were coming. The coastal fortifications were ready and waiting the day of the invasion. La Maddalena only had a small permanent garrison of a few hundred men. By the time of the battle, they had been reinforced with 400 well-trained regular infantry, plus militia and volunteers. There were nearly four times as many Sardinian troops on the island as the French had expected. Those reinforcements had arrived quite recently, a little under a month after the orders from Paris to attack the island had arrived in Corsica. Circumstantial evidence, but certainly suggestive. Then there's the question of Colonel Di Cesari's behavior. He had been almost totally passive throughout days of battle, ignoring clear opportunities to attack. Remember, Napoleon had seized San Stefano under his own initiative, without orders from the colonel. After that first failed landing, Di Cesari had only ordered one offensive maneuver, and that had been on a minor outlying island with only a small part of his force. And he wasn't being cautious by holding back. The expedition had been in an extremely dangerous position as long as they remained on those boats, as the high casualty numbers attest. It's possible Di Cesari was simply incompetent, as Napoleon angrily accused on the first day of battle. But this behavior is also pretty consistent with someone who didn't actually want to capture the island. The decision to use the Ajaccio units of the National Guard is also interesting. As we've seen, this was a hotbed of opposition to Pauli, so he may have selected them in hopes that some of the more troublesome officers, like, for instance, Napoleon Bonaparte, would be killed, or at least embarrassed by defeat. Lastly, and probably most obviously, there's the fact that Paris had asked for 10,000 men, but only 2,000 had been sent. I think there's a pretty compelling case that something nefarious was going on, but unfortunately, it's unlikely we'll ever know for sure whether or not Pauli or Di Cesari or anyone else sabotaged the La Maddalena expedition. If any evidence one way or the other has survived, it remains to be discovered. Despite the lack of proof, both Napoleon and his immediate superior included these suspicions in their official reports to the government in Paris. They did not explicitly name Pauli, but the implication was obvious. Who else had both motive and opportunity? This was a dangerous step. The reports were officially classified, but if Pauli somehow discovered that he'd been practically accused of treason, his character impugned, and his entire political project jeopardized, there was no telling how severe the retaliation might be. The reports were taken very seriously in Paris. Like I said, the expedition was probably always intended as a bit of a loyalty test for Pauli. His enemies in the government eagerly pointed to the accounts from the Ajaccio guard officers as proof that he'd failed this test. Christophe Salicetti led the charge. In case you've forgotten, Salicetti was a Corsican lawyer who had risen to a powerful position in the revolutionary government and became political patron of the Bonapartes. He was also a fierce opponent of Pauli, and the general's biggest political rival on Corsica. 
The convention voted to send a three-man delegation to Corsica, entrusted with extraordinary legal powers to investigate the failure of the La Maddalena expedition and smoke out any traitors. One of the three would be Christophe Salicetti. Pauli was in big trouble. Upon arriving on the island, Salicetti set out to neutralize every political faction on Corsica hostile to the revolution. He pursued this goal unflinchingly, with every tool at his disposal. Royalists, Paulisti, and anyone else who got in Salicetti's way were subject to a wave of arbitrary arrests and legal harassment. The delegation brought a guillotine with them, so I think it's safe to say they were not playing around. This was political warfare. Since Pauli's return in 1790, his Corsican opponents had watched helplessly as he used his position to chip away at their political bases and assert dominance over the whole island. Now the shoe was on the other foot. Salicetti was just as single-minded, clever, and authoritarian as Pauli. Pauli still had much more political influence on the island, but with the investigation hanging over his head, he couldn't risk moving against Salicetti in the open. The political momentum was shifting. Paulisti began quietly stockpiling arms and preparing fortifications, just in case. On April 2nd, 1793, the convention issued an ultimatum. Pauli was ordered to resign from all political posts and report to Paris to face an inquiry. The implication was clear. If Pauli did not peacefully submit to imprisonment, the Republic would attempt to capture him by force. In other words, it would be war between the Paulisti and the Revolution. On the mainland, young Lucien Bonaparte seized upon Pauli's moment of weakness. He delivered a speech to the Jacobin Club of the city of Toulon in southern France. The subject was Corsican politics. The audience was probably expecting a dry general survey. What they got was a fiery two-hour denunciation of Pasquale Pauli. Throughout all their disagreements, none of the Bonaparte brothers had ever dared to directly criticize Pauli by name in public or in print. Now, Lucian seemed to be trying to make up for lost time. He called Pauli a liar and a traitor. Specifically, he accused him of secretly working with the British, which was an especially dangerous allegation because it was actually true. Pauli was in secret talks with Britain. In hindsight, maybe Pauli should have just agreed to hire Lucian. Jacobin meetings always took minutes, and particularly good or notable speeches were often reprinted and sold as pamphlets. Some enterprising publisher decided Lucian's speech might be a good seller, and copies of it began to circulate around southern France. Lucian had acted without consulting either of his older brothers, and they would remain unaware of what he'd done for weeks. Back on Corsica, Napoleon had a very different reaction to Pauli's troubles. On the 18th of April, Napoleon published a passionate open letter to the government in Paris, in which he attempted to refute all of the allegations against Pauli and begged the government to drop its inquiry. The essay praises Pauli as, quote, The patriarch of liberty, the precursor of the French Republic. So posterity will think, so the people believe, end quote. Addressing the convention, he writes, quote, Hear my voice. 
silence the slander and those deeply perverse men who allege it. Representatives, Powley is over 70 years old. He is infirm. Otherwise, he would go to your inquiry to confound his enemies. We owe him everything, including the existence of the French Republic. He continues to enjoy our confidence. Revoke your decree of April 2nd and give all the people joy. End quote. Did he consider Christophe Salicetti, his own patron, deeply perverse? Is Napoleon himself a deeply perverse slanderer? After all, a lot of the accusations he challenged in this essay originated in his own report. It's a strange essay, and honestly, hard to explain. One thing is clear. That conflict between Napoleon's dual Corsican and French identities was still not resolved. As for my own speculation, Napoleon probably felt guilty for his role in Pauli's downfall. He never stopped admiring the general. Even when he wrote about Pauli late in life, it's almost all positive. You still get glimpses of that boyhood hero worship. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Napoleon was good at compartmentalizing his political life, keeping it separate from his feelings and from his personal life. Even when the Bonaparte's rivalry with Pauli was at its most intense, he didn't let it interfere with his personal feelings of admiration, or vice versa. Maybe part of him still held out the vain hope that Pauli would one day come around and see the Bonaparte brothers as peers and as partners. I think Napoleon just wanted to defeat Pauli in the political arena, not see him disgraced, humiliated, and destroyed as a person, as the convention was now clearly prepared to do. But that type of restrained competition was no longer possible in the ever-worsening environment of French revolutionary politics. Political rivals now played for keeps. Winner gets absolute power, loser gets the guillotine. If there was still even the tiniest iota of a chance of Pauli reconciling with the Bonapartes, it finally decisively died only weeks after Napoleon published his open letter, when copies of Lucian's big speech finally arrived in Corsica. Once again, Pauli was infuriated at the Bonapartes, but this time there would be no summons to Corte, no angry lecture. He was through giving the brothers second chances. Pauli let it be known that Lucian had insulted him, and that only a vendetta would salvage his honor. By Corsican tradition, the adult male Bonapartes were now faced with a stark choice. They could either disavow Lucian and swear an oath to kill him on sight, or the vendetta would extend to them as well. Whatever their feelings for Pauli, family was everything for Napoleon and Joseph. They did not hesitate to stand with their brother. The Bonapartes became marked men. Joseph broke for the coast to arrange transportation to the mainland. Napoleon took to the hills. The Corsican parliament declared the Bonapartes outlaws and stripped them of their citizenship and their property. 
Meanwhile, Pao Li's standoff with the government was escalating into open warfare. His conflict with the Bonapartes and conflict with the revolutionaries turned violent almost simultaneously. In early May, Pauli made it abundantly clear he would not be attending any inquiries. Armed Paulisti rose up and seized cities, forts, and other strategic locations all over Corsica. Just like the Genoese decades earlier, the revolutionary government only retained control of a few coastal strongholds. In cities and towns, Corsican mobs tore down the public symbols of the revolution and attacked suspected radicals. In Ajaccio, they ransacked the Bonaparte family home. Out in the highlands, Napoleon managed to link up with Salicetti. They scraped together a force of loyal National Guardsmen and revolutionary sympathizers fleeing the mobs. It could have been the start of some kind of Republican guerrilla movement, but Salicetti chose to make a risky assault on Ajaccio. They were defeated with heavy casualties. The survivors decided to split up and make their own ways to mainland France as best they could. Joseph had managed to get a letter to Napoleon. He and the rest of the family had found refuge in Calvi, one of the few remaining port towns still held by the Republicans. They would wait for him, then depart to the mainland together. So Napoleon just had to get to Calvi. Unfortunately, that's across the island from Ajaccio. He would have to walk it, through rough country to avoid the heavily guarded roads and towns. Napoleon was far from the only Corsican who traveled in the highlands to avoid the authorities. The island has a long and storied tradition of banditry. Anyone traveling alone through the Corsican highlands was at risk, and Pauli's vendetta had put a target on Napoleon's back. Then he finally got a stroke of good luck. The first strangers Napoleon came across weren't bandits. In fact, they weren't even strangers. It was a group of shepherds who had rented land from the Bonapartes for generations. In the traditional Corsican clan system, Napoleon and Joseph were their chiefs. The shepherds probably could have named their own reward if they'd handed him over to Pauli, but this was Corsica, and those clan ties mattered. They offered Napoleon their hospitality and volunteered to see him safe to Calvi. He remembered this gesture for the rest of his life. When Napoleon passed away 27 years later, he left the shepherds a small fortune in his will. He'd remembered each of them by name. Napoleon finally reached Calvi in early June and was reunited with his family. The plan was to sail for the mainland, but before they left Corsica, Napoleon had one last item of business to take care of, writing another report. Sure, he'd just reached the end of a harrowing ordeal that had nearly killed him on several occasions, but Napoleon was just not the type of man to neglect his clerical duties to the state. In that report, at long last, Napoleon criticized Pasquale Paoli directly by name. I think there's something a little poetic in that. Napoleon's last act before leaving his ancestral home for exile was admitting his childhood idol was flawed. Someone more literary than me could turn that into a good metaphor. On June 11th, 1793, the Bonapartes boarded a ship bound for Toulon. They had a little bit of cash, some clothes, and personal effects, but there hadn't been time to bring much else. Besides, most of the family's wealth was in land, 
and all that belonged to the Paulisti now. The Bonapartes were refugees. Some of them would eventually see Corsica again. In time, they would even regain some of the property seized by Pauli's rebel government. The Bonapartes maintained their Corsican identity, but their future was on the mainland. None of them would ever live on the island full-time again, and their only involvement in the island's politics in the future would be from Paris, from the top down, once Napoleon gained national political power. They had been to the mainland before, but when the Bonapartes landed in Toulon on June 13, 1793, it was different. This time, they weren't looking back. I think that's a good place to leave it for now. Before I go, I want to remind you one more time to take the survey at survey.libsyn.com slash ageofnapoleon. I also want to thank Dr. Maurizio Cinti, whose research into the La Maddalena expedition was vital in writing this episode. Next time, France will be rocked by yet another rebellion. We'll see Napoleon finally rejoin the regular army, where he will begin to distinguish himself and get the attention of some powerful people. Until then, thanks for joining me. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey to the most destructive conflict in human history. A journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com.